When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today the hatred is sort of like a cancer of the soul and so it just spread i became more and more obsessed with all of this and got into more and more violent activities which culminated in a bombing attempt in mississippi in 1968 at the home of a jewish businessman and i was involved with the ku klux klan at that point so Two of us went to deliver this bomb at, at this um, person's home, and uh, it was staked out by a, what we would call a SWAT team today, 26 heavily armed um, local police officers. And um, when all of the shooting stopped, a person with me, a young school teacher, a young woman from Jackson, Mississippi, she had been killed. Um, I had been shot at close range with double buckshot four times and um, was barely alive. Life is a journey, and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something. These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world. And we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories. Now more than ever, we need each other, and we need each other's stories. This is On the Other Side. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are your host of today's show. I'm Aaron Ivey. And I am Jamie Ivey. And my goodness, we have an amazing show for you today. Tom Terrence is our guest, and Tom was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama. And as a high school student in the mid-60s, he opposed the desegregation of the public schools, and he eventually joined the Ku Klux Klan. By the age of 21, he was a full-fledged racist and was a terrorist in the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, at the time described by the FBI as the most violent right-wing terrorist organization in America. After a bloody shootout with the police and the FBI, in which his partner was killed and Tom nearly died, he was eventually arrested. He was sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, one of the worst in the nation at the time. A few months later, he escaped from prison, but was later apprehended by the FBI after another shootout in which one of his accomplices was killed. While reading the Gospels in prison, Tom experienced a life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ. After that, he renounced the Klan, 
with its racism and hatred and devoted himself to serving Christ and promoting the love and peace that Christ alone can give. He was incarcerated for eight years. After Tom was released from prison, he attended the University of Mississippi and later attended seminary, even graduating with the Masters of Divinity. Tom is the president emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute, and after serving 12 years as president and nine years as vice president, he retired from his position as vice president for ministry and director. Tom has an amazing story. I think you're going to be blown away as you hear what he went through, what he was a part of, and how transformation has literally turned Tom into a different human being. Listen now as Tom recounts his story of what led to the summer of 1968. Yeah, well, it was a very difficult time in America. Um, The 60s were a major inflection point for the country and for the culture. And, um, well, I was, I was raised in, in Mobile, Alabama, which was founded in 1702. And um, it had been segregated ever since 1702. And, um, you know, the facilities there, you go to public facilities, I went to a, a lunch counter, they had the colored section, and then the white section public uh, facilities where you'd have bathrooms that signs over the doors colored Mm -hmm. and white water fountains and just on and on you could go the whole society was structured that way and Mm -hmm. blacks lived in a certain part of town whites and and you didn't cross those lines and um, nothing was said about it it was just the way life was Uh, and so I grew up with that and um wasn't raised to be a racist. I just grew up in that kind of world. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was normal. And so, and for many, many other people too. And so when the desegregation of public schools began in 63 uh, in, in Alabama, um, my school was selected as one of those to be desegregated. And uh, I had a really hard time with that. I became very angry about it. And um and I uh, encountered some racist, anti-Semitic literature that was being distributed and started mm-hmm. reading that. And um, I uh, met the people who were passing that out, and one thing led to another. And what grade I, were you in in this? Is this high school? Yes, that was my junior year in okay. high school. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got involved with these folks and read more, listened to lectures, and went to meetings, and I became thoroughly indoctrinated in in this um, extremist ideology. Completely unaware to your parents? They knew I was doing things or involved with people that were not good, but they Mm -hmm. didn't know the details because I kept them in the dark as much Mm -hmm. as I could. you know, when you, when you take hatred into your heart, which is what this ideology did, it just really mm-hmm. generated hatred um, toward these people that were enemies of America, you know, mm-hmm. it's Jewish people, communists, uh, black people, liberals, socialists, mm-hmm. this whole list. Um, uh, the fear that comes with this kind of social upheaval generates fear in people's mm-hmm. lives and so or the uh, the fear ge- uh, generates um, anger in people's lives and um, 
so that was true for me. And, uh, you know, it, it grew into hatred. And the hatred is sort of like a, a cancer of the soul. Hmm. And so it just spread. I became more and more obsessed with all of this and um, got into more and more violent activities, which culminated in a bombing attempt in Mississippi in 1968 at the home of a Jewish businessman. And I was involved with the Ku Klux Klan at that point. And um, the FBI had learned about this plan and... uh, are you in college at this point? Well, I had been okay uh, briefly, uh, but I was so wrapped up in this stuff that I left. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it just became an obsession, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, two of us went to deliver this bomb at, at this um, person's home, and uh, it was staked out by what we would call a SWAT team today, 26 heavily armed local police officers. And um, I won't go into all the details. The book talks Mm -hmm. about all of that. But when all of the shooting stopped, um, a person with me, a young school teacher, a young woman from Jackson, Mississippi, she had been killed. Um, I had been shot at close range with double buckshot four times. And um, was barely alive. They said if I lived 45 minutes, it would be a miracle. Hmm. Um, but God spared my life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of people that I have heard who have kind of drifted away from their values that their parents might have, whatever that might look like, and they have maybe joined an extremist group. Um, a lot of times people will say they find a really true sense of community within that did you feel that to be true in your life at that time as well? Yes, that certainly was true. A common cause. Yeah, you share this. Um, you share this. Basically, it's a worldview. What what I experienced was a a shift or a change in my worldview, hmm. and then you're bonded together with people that uh, hold that same worldview. Hmm. So. It was very much a, a, a kind of community yeah. mm-hmm. built mm-hmm. around certain ideas yeah. and values. While you were in the middle of that, was there ever any sense just kind of internally that something was wrong with that kind of ideology? Was there a part of you that was like, mm, this seems wrong? Or was it just steady moving through it? Uh, steady moving through it. <clears throat> and the reason for that, I think, is... Um, um, the whole culture was in a, a state of upheaval. It's hard to imagine today hmm. what it was like back in the early 60s mm-hmm. in, the, in the South, especially a deep South traditional um, city like Mobile. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, the narrative that we all had, um, the governor, George Wallace, had um, taken a public stand against the desegregation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and a very strong uh, stand against it and had uh, said that the civil rights movement was um, um, really a uh, communist-inspired work. And uh, so... Which feeds into the rhetoric that you're already believing. Yeah, Yeah. and so so the narrative then that that I was uh, operating with was that... uh, 
uh, America is uh, under attack um, mm-hmm. by these um, nefarious elements, mm-hmm. you know, that are attempting mm-hmm. to overthrow things, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that you know. True patriots should stand up for the country and um, fight against all of this. So um, that was it. And, of course, it had a religious component to it. It was Christian. Mm. Christian America. uh, And the white Christian America that we have known for all these years Mm. is under attack, and Mm. we need to stand up and fight against this. You know, mm-hmm. and for you, I know because I've read your book. You grew up in a Christian home, and so this kind of felt like, oh, I am standing up for my religious rights, almost. Well, let me um, clarify just a little bit. I grew up in a home, uh, and we were um, Bible Belt religion mm-hmm. was very, yeah. very strong mm-hmm. in those days, and so. Everybody was a Christian who wasn't a Jew. Yeah, yeah. So that's how you would say your home was. Well, not exactly that way, because my mother had, I believe she had a real faith. And um, when I was just a little kid, she would read the Bible to me. And um, she wanted us to be in church. And, you know, she made every effort to take us or make sure we were there. And, um, And so it was a good Southern Baptist Church, you know, and mm-hmm. we were there frequently. But there's a difference between that and what you'd call a, a real Christian mm-hmm. family. My dad never right. went to church. Yeah, yeah. Um, Looking back, you can see that yeah. that was a little different. Um, that night that the SWAT team was there, you were injured very badly. Hospital, um, the woman that was with you passed away from her injuries. And then from there, you find yourself on trial. Can we talk about that? Like what this, I, I, I would only imagine someone with such, you know, zealousness for their cause. And then now you find yourself in a predicament where your cause in your mind and what you could do, you feel is probably done. You're going to jail potentially for life. Right. The, or the death penalty, which is, isn't, didn't you say that they wanted that? Yes, uh, they wanted the death penalty mm. because I, in in the gun battling that took place, I shot a police officer, mm. and um, who lived though, right? He he lived. So it, it was a, a miracle story mm-hmm. because mm. yeah. he was hit three times in the chest, yeah, um, once in the heart, but God mm. spared his life. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, it was it was just incredible uh, what happened, but they. They were very angry about that. And uh, plus, in Mississippi, um, attempted bombing is a capital offense. Mm. Wow. Still is. Mm. It's a capital offense. So that allowed them to pursue that. Pursue that. And they wanted to make a statement, too, because mm-hmm. the Klan had mm-hmm. been, um, in the 60s, had been involved in a lot of yeah. violence. And, um, so anyway, uh, I was tried. I think the, it took two days or so something. Two days in your book, yes. Uh, yeah, and um, convicted and sentenced to 30 years in the state mm-hmm. penitentiary, which was mm-hmm. considered one of the worst uh, in the country at that point. And how old were you? I was 21. 
such a young 21. man. Wow. 21. Mm. Yeah. And I read, which I can get a little bit of your, you seem a little feisty when you were 21 because you said in your book, you said, I was sentenced to this many years or until I escaped. Well, I was. Was that your mindset of I'm going to get out of here? Well, yeah, I was hardcore. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I, um, but uh, as you were alluding to earlier, before I was tried, I mean, it was like the whole world had fallen apart. Yeah. Mm. Uh, because my ideology was really an idol, mm. all-consuming, all-consuming, absolutely, and um, and so when I finally was sentenced and um, went to prison, well, I I had gotten to the point of thinking, well, maybe there's some way out of this. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can escape from this prison and go back to what I was doing. Yeah. You said this after you were taken into jail. It says, for five years, my life had centered on the cause. I had passionately devoted myself to it, just as a man gives himself to his wife or his God. Indeed, for me, the cause had grown to be a God of sorts, as it dominated my thinking and my life. Everything was subordinate to it. Family, career, relationships, reputation, and the varied pleasures of life. I lived for it. I sacrificed and suffered for it. If necessary, I was willing to die for it. You said, captured and caged in a cell, I could no longer pursue the cause, though I was devoted as ever. Yeah, that that captures it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. So you're you're in jail, you're in prison. We should say, not in jail. You're in prison. Can you talk about what happened for, for in your life that changed your life in prison? Well, I put together an escape plan. Uh, recruited two other inmates and pulled it off successfully. But a couple of days later, the FBI found where we were, and there was a another gun battle. And one of the inmates that escaped with me, he came to relieve me. We we stood watch. Uh, we were in a wooded area and stood watch just to see the traffic going up and down this dirt road. And... Um, and so he came and relieved me about 30 minutes early. And I went back to our camp, a little tent we had set up. And five minutes, 10 minutes uh, at the most, there was this barrage of gunfire, heavy gunfire up mm. there, folks in that area right where I was and should should have been. And uh, it was an FBI SWAT team. And... Um, they were coming up quietly through the woods and knew mm. where we were, and they saw him first. And they knew we were heavily armed and had hand grenades and all this sort of stuff. Wow. Um, and so they weren't taking any chances, mm. and um, he was killed instantly. Well, I should have been there. I was gonna, I'm mm-hmm. counting two times yeah. now that your yep. life has yeah. been spared. Yep. Yeah. It's totally undeserved, uh, needless to say. Mm-hmm. Totally undeserved. But God spared my life it's just god's mercy is beyond what we can really imagine mm-hmm. so i was taken back to prison put in the maximum security unit and locked away by myself in a little six by nine cell and um that's where i stayed 24 hours a day wow. seven days a week I suppose the only benefit was that they offered room service. <laughs> your your meals in, were, in total isolation. 
Well, I was by myself in the cell, but there were other cells in that cell block. Okay. That I couldn't see anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, And you spent how many years like that? I was in that cell three years. Mm. So, well, what's going on in your head in those three years while you're Well, the first thing in, in my head was, is there any way to escape? Uh-huh. <laughs> you're going to try again. Yeah, but I pretty quickly figured out, no, that's that's not, not going to work. And um, so, you know, when you're just all by yourself tw- uh, 24 hours a day, you, you'll go crazy if you don't find something to do. Mm-hmm. And so I began to read. Started off reading all kinds of racist, anti-Semitic, extremist literature, and then got through uh, most of that that I had not read previously right. and started reading classical philosophy, which uh, had some interest to me, Plato, works of Plato and Aristotle and um, Stoics. Uh, and out of that came, uh, I think most people think, well, you're only going the wrong direction again. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, there there's a lot of stuff in philosophy that's not helpful now. Uh, uh, some is has value, and um, out of that reading that I I came away with the idea that there is such a thing as objective truth, mm. and that it exists independently of us, and mm-hmm. that we can pursue and discover it, mm. and um, and then also Socrates um, said the unexamined life is not worth living, you know, and so those two ideas came together, and I. I uh, just felt that I should launch myself into a pursuit of truth. Okay. Um, now, uh, mind you, this was not anything that um, I thought would take me away from what I was believing. Yeah. I, I think it was the Holy Spirit really drawing me and using this to draw me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like mm-hmm. pre-evangelism, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, he was using these things and... Uh, so I continued reading and thinking, and at a certain point, I felt drawn to read the Gospels. Hmm. And um, as I was reading the Gospels, that's where it all changed. Wow. Now, I was not a stranger to You've been the to Bible. church, yeah. I, I, Not just church, but a Southern Baptist <laughs> yeah. church, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I have Sunday school, church yeah. uh, on Sunday and all the rest. And, um, but it never really penetrated my heart, Hmm. you know, I heard a lot of stuff, but it was like water rolling off the back Mm -hmm. of, of a duck, but now it was different. My eyes began to be opened. I began to see what the scriptures meant and how they applied to my life. Hmm. And, um, it was it was like a, a light being turned on, just to, gradually, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I was seeing more and more clearly uh, with each passing day. This was over a period of uh, probably a couple of weeks. And um, I, I came to recognize that um, the profession of faith that I had made at 13 really did not result in me being born again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was duly baptized, you know, all the way under, mm-hmm. no sprinkling. <laughs> um, but I was still 
lost. With the only difference being that I thought, okay, I'm okay, I'm good now. Mm. I'm I'm good. I'll, I'll be in heaven when I die. And um, but you know, no change of life, no spiritual hunger, no desire to go deeper with God, or you know, none of that. Right. No change. Right. But now my eyes were being opened in, in a, a way I'd never known before, and I saw that I had never really come to a place of repentance for my sins. Even though I'd said correct words, mm-hmm. I had never come to that place. And, um, and so thank God for the Baptists, because... If I learned nothing else, John 3.16. Stuck with you, wouldn't it? It stuck with me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so I knew where to go. I didn't need any Mm -hmm. uh, pondering about that. And um, I got on my knees one night and just prayed a very simple prayer and asked Jesus to forgive my sins and to take over my life. And do whatever he wanted to with it, mm. and something changed inside of me. I wasn't I wasn't looking for an experience. I didn't know what I was yeah. doing except yeah. this, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. praying. Something changed inside of me, and um, so that's been fifty years ago, wow. and I haven't been the wow. same since. I was going to mm. ask you, as you know, you, you were talking about, you know, when you were in your late high school and early college years about what you were believing. And, and you mentioned what we've all seen in parts of this in our history, in our history in the country is that there was a lot of ideology that this was a, this was Christian, Christian people thing. who were fighting for their country. Mm, yeah. So as you're in your, you know, your cell in prison and you're, you start to see the tr- Bible as the truth for what it is. How did you reckon in your emotions and in your soul and in even why you were in prison how did you balance these two things in your life? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Like, how did you see immediately your love is growing for the Lord and your love for your ideology is growing less? Or did you have to fight these more? Does that make sense what I'm asking? It makes perfect sense. And uh, this is an interesting part of the story. Um, actually, I came to realize the bankruptcy of this ideology before I was converted. Okay. Mm. Just before, wow. through reading um, a book um, written by a um, conservative philosopher, political philosopher, who in just a few words, a, a couple of paragraphs, I guess, debunked the core of anti-Semitic thought wow. and wow. also racist thinking. And so... Was this an American writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a guy named James Burnham. And the book I was reading was called The Suicide of the West. So that really opened my eyes to see that what I had been believing was not rooted in truth or reality. Mm. Um, so when I came to Christ, it wasn't it wasn't a matter of uh, turning away from that because I already it it had just collapsed. It didn't mm-hmm. hold up for what mm-hmm. you yeah it just yeah. all collapsed. And you're reading this stuff alone. You're not processing it with people. This is just you absorbing all of this. The yeah. Bible, this book, right? Hmm. It was just entirely uh, me in that cell and the Holy Spirit working mm-hmm. uh, to open my eyes. Wow. Wow. So. Um, so you met Jesus in prison. 
and he changed I, your life. I did absolutely. That's where it. That's where it happened. He. Uh, he was so kind to me, and you know I wish it had happened a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm glad that it did. Yeah. So I know you spent more than three years in prison. So you spent the three years in that solitary or, you know, the isolation cell. And then did you go back into what was it like when you went back into general population? Um, Actually, it was um, for me, it was a a good situation. Um, I was uh, allowed to work for the chaplains. Because they had seen the, the change, change in my life, wow. they wanted me to work for them as a clerk. Mm-hmm. Amazing! And so I spent the next, well, the rest of my time there working for the chaplains. Hmm. Do you remember the first time you became friends with a black man? I do, and it was right there in the maximum security unit. Shortly after I met the Lord, hmm. and there was a guy there by the name of Gary, and he was a cook, and one of the inmates, but he was a, a cook. And um, after about two years in that cell, I was given the opportunity to get out during the day to do clerical work for the officials there in that in that unit. And uh, and so I met him, and um, he saw that I was reading the Bible, and mm-hmm. you know, and I had in my cell i had lots of christian books stacked up on mm-hmm. on the top bunk mm. um and so he said um i've been reading the bible can i ask you a question and so that started it you know and um now this was almost like the blind leading the blind because <laughs> yeah. you know I, um I was maybe one step ahead of him. Well, that's what they call discipleship. That's one step it. ahead. <laughs> and that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, yeah. It started with this one uh-huh. black guy. Uh-huh. And um, so he and I became friends, and um, I tried to answer his questions. And um, I've just been doing the same thing. The rest of your life. The rest of mm-hmm. my life, yeah. And this is the, you know, the first time you've been friends with a black person. Was, did it just seem totally natural because you had met Jesus and had this heart change? Did it, was there still tension in what no, you had no, thought? No, no, no. That had gone away. Hmm. That had gone away. Yeah. I, I, it just sort of became a non-issue to me. And I know it doesn't work that way for everyone. For sure, yeah. Sure. But yeah. for me, it's just kind of dissipated, I guess you'd say. The, the number one issue was someone, whether someone knew Jesus or not. Mm-hmm. And if so, nothing else mattered. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. you're, you're describing a, a ginormous change in your life. And I'm wondering what it was like for, for the guards, for the fellow inmates who had known you previously to this change. And knew what they, you were in prison for. Yeah, I knew why yeah. you were there. What were the reactions from fellow inmates, guards, FBI police who knew the Tom that they knew from the early, you know late sixties. Yeah, well, quite a few people thought, well, this is just jailhouse religion. Yeah, mm. how convenient, right? Yeah, right. And um, actually, J. Edgar Hoover sent um, this FBI agent who had sort of orchestrated the events in Meridian uh, and had interviewed me in the jail when I was there. Um, he sent him up to look into this because he thought, well, this guy's just trying to find a, 
uh, a way to get out of that mm. cell mm-hmm. where he can escape. Mm. And Hoover had said, I should never be released from that cell, ever. Um, so this guy came up, his name was Frank Watts, and um, he had a partner with him, and uh, they came and interviewed me, and they, uh, they just said, well, I understand been some changes in your life. What's what's happening here with you? And uh, well, I I was just like a brand new Christian, you know, and I didn't know what what to do. And I just told him my testimony, <laughs> and um, boy, did they ever scratch their heads? What what yeah. is this about? Yeah. Um, so uh, now the Frank he he later told me he said you looked different. Mm. You looked. Some, I knew something had happened to you. I didn't know what, yeah. but you looked different. Well, I think a couple of months later, it was. What happened to me happened to him. Amazing. Yeah, this new birth. Uh-huh. He he realized, and he was a good man. He was a good, moral man. Uh, you know, upstanding uh, member of the community, member of First Baptist Church and all that, and um, he realized that in spite of all that, he he had never been born again. Mm. And he he came to the Lord, and his life was changed. It was changed, and uh, we became really good friends, and, um, and were friends until the day he died. Uh, he died of cancer several years after he retired from the Bureau. But it's just that's one example mm-hmm, of uh, mm-hmm. uh, how God worked, but um, the, the person in charge of the maximum security unit, he he noticed me getting these Christian books and reading them, and uh, they used to read your mail when you'd, mm-hmm. I mean, and back in those days it was allowed to inspect the mail, so mm-hmm. they'd read your letters. Mm. And uh, so he saw my letters to my mother mm-hmm. that's all all i ever wrote was letters to my mother and uh he could see the change and then the change in my demeanor and mm-hmm. you know all that um so after about a year of that of observing he he was convinced that you know that it was true that it was true and he wanted to help me mm-hmm. and so he went to the superintendent of the prison and asked him if he would allow me out of that cell to work as the clerk there in the unit. And um, superintendent agreed, but the understanding was that uh, if I escaped again, his job was... Uh, <laughs> on the line. He on, the line. on the line. He, yeah, he, yeah he, he, he wasn't going to be working there anymore. Right. So uh, he did. He put his job on the yeah. line. Hmm. But God was good. Um I mean, others began to see this. The chaplains saw early what was going on. And uh, so they would give me Christian books yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but there's still a lot of skeptics. But eventually people began to yeah. think, well, mm-hmm. maybe something's maybe different. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know you didn't serve all those 30-something years. Am I right about that? Right. What did that look like for you to get out of prison earlier? Um, I know you had some people fight for you to get that for that to happen yeah this fbi agent was one of them wow and um also leader of the civil rights movement in mississippi 
stood up and said I should be released. And um, I I think the sentiment basically was this guy is different and he can do more good out of prison than in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one of the leaders of the Jewish community, too, uh, was was advocating for, for this. So uh it's a very interesting story and it's only by the grace of god that it happened i mean it's a, a real miracle because normally these things don't work like yeah. this but um i was released to go to the university of mississippi and um sponsored by the head of the um criminal justice program there wow yeah uh and uh I loved every minute of it. I'd, I'd still be at Ole Miss if, uh, if it had been up to me. I just I loved academics. I loved mm-hmm. to study. Mm-hmm. I loved the university life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of small town in the south. And, yeah. So, how well, many years did you spend in prison? I spent eight years to the day. Okay. To, to the, the day. day. To the day. Wow. Yeah. I, wow. I left exactly the same day I came in. Wow. Eight years later. That's amazing. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Now that you're on the other side of racism and prison and, and all of that, um, you mentioned something at the very beginning. You said fear generates hatred. And we live in an America right now that's got a lot of fear, a lot of racial tension and injustice. How do you think that we move forward in attacking fear, like not being fearful of other people so it doesn't generate hatred? Yeah. Well, what I should have said or, or clarified was that fear generates um, anger, and anger then can grow into hatred. So it doesn't mm. work in every person's life, you know. But um, there's a lot of that today. The world we're living in is um, uh, in a state of rapid social change, political and economic changes, and um, it's creating uh, a well, it's just a real social upheaval. And when that happens, people are asking, what in the world is going on? And there are other people saying, I'll tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. And see, that's that gives an opening to um, extremist ideology mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and um, you know, right and left. It's mm-hmm. not just that only the, the right wing does this or the racist and anti-Semitic folks. Mm-hmm. Um so 
we're in a mess, and it's only going to get worse. I, I know people don't want to hear that, mm -hmm. but if you look at the research, uh, you'll see uh, the trajectory. If you talk to African Americans, for example, um, the vast majority would say that uh, race relations are very bad. Mm -hmm. um, white people, not so much. Mm -hmm. they, they don't mm -hmm. quite see that. Yeah. Um, but almost any minority, if you talk to almost any minority today, Hispanic, uh, Asian, African American, uh, Muslims, whatever, mm -hmm. they are really worried. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They see this right. very differently. Yeah. Yeah. And most of us white people, we're just... You know, that's not on our mind, not on our radar so much. that Because um, we're a majority and it doesn't affect us. Yes, and this is where things are um, changing. You know, white people, well, in um, 1965, 88% of the people in this country were white people. Mm. And 10, I think it's 10.7% were black. And then... You know, maybe one percent of, of of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Well, that mix has been changing. The demographics have been steadily changing, and the projections by the Census Bureau are that in twenty forty four, white people will cease to be a majority. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about something that can generate fear. That is it, and so. What you have now, uh, say in uh, 65, white people didn't think about being white. Mm. And for years after that, nobody thought about being white because we were the vast majority and we were in control. But um, more recently, as these demographic changes have happened, um, what you're seeing is that growing percentages of white people are thinking about their white identity hmm. and are concerned about where things are going and how they will fare in the changes ahead when whites are no longer in charge and these other groups are influencing the system. They have a fear of losing something. A fear of, right, exactly, hmm. losing um, the advantages, privileges um, that come with being majority dominant race mm. it's very is, understandable i mean it's not like nefarious i mean people some people are concerned about that the estimates by um well the research by a, a young lady a, so, a political scientist at um, duke university she's done a lot of research uh, working with some other uh, researchers in this area and her figures are 30 to 40% of white people are what you now call white identifiers. They're conscious of their whiteness. 35%? No, 30 between 30 and 40%. Mm. And so that has a, a lot of, uh, they're not racist. She distinguishes very clearly, not racist in the sense that they have resentment and animosity toward people of other races. They're just, it's kind of like, looking out for number one, so to speak. What's going to happen to us when all these changes uh, uh, come into place? And um, and so it's kind of, you know, motivated by self-interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But Which, it's, when you when you're saying these facts, and you're talking about how you know and and what they're predicting, the census predicting. These are the same fears that you that we all know happened in the '60s. You know, it just yeah. it looked just looked different, but it's the same fears that drove you into believing the ideology mm-hmm. of hatred of this is ours, we must protect this, no one can take it, and so we're still dealing with the same type of this is ours, no one can take it. Yes, we we are in a period that has some similarities to the '60s. Mm-hmm. There was a populist wave in the 60s around the whole race issue and um you know populist governors like george wallace or ross barnett or lester maddox in georgia uh, people like this well we're in the midst of a major populist wave in the world today Mm. and certainly in america and that's affecting everything and um there are all kinds of implications related to race and ethnicity. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a time when, you know, things are, well, coming unglued. I, you know, I, I've watched now, 73 years old, I've watched uh, America for a long time. And um, I've never seen anything like this. Mm. And, it's really troubling to see the the intensity of polarization yeah. that we have in this country yeah. between people on the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my hometown there, uh, Washington, my now hometown, I've been there 42 years. When I came to Washington, um, Democrats and Republicans in the Congress would be talking about an issue have different sides, different opinions. End of the day, they yeah. go home mm-hmm. and uh, they might have dinner together. Families yeah. might have dinner yeah. together, um, or the you know the guys and they were all guys in that mm-hmm. period. Uh, they might go after work and and have a beer together. Yeah. It, the politics didn't disrupt the friendships. Mm. Interesting. It, yeah. Mm. Now it's hard to imagine. Now it, exactly. <laughs> now there are a few mm-hmm. that have these friendships across party lines. Yeah. But um, for the most part, it's kind of, um, well, it's a lot of hatred and animosity. It's a tribal tribalism. That's a mm-hmm. word that's being used mm-hmm. now. And uh, sadly, truth has been murdered by tribalism in, in our day. Um, people just cannot come together and mm. can't accept a common set of facts mm-hmm. and evidence and yeah. all the rest. Um, well, that bodes very ill for the future. Mm. And uh, you can be excused from wondering if America is unraveling, American democracy is unraveling. Yeah. Yeah. No, hopefully not. And hopefully there's a way to recover from this. But right now, it's pretty grim when you look at it. What do you think a, a way forward is? For Christians specifically, well, that's that is the question that most concerns me, and I think um, the church has very little credibility in the world today. Hmm. In the you, would you say the world or in North America? Well, North America. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The North American Church. The North American Church, and and the church in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
things actually are growing in Africa yeah, and in yeah. Asia. Yeah, just and there, there, and the church is alive yep. and well. Alive and well, indeed. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the secularism that has taken over Europe and is is taking over America is having profound uh, effects. Um, so what about the church? Well, the church is, on this particular issue of race, is identified as just a kind of white ghetto. Hmm. There needs to be a demonstration of the uh, of authentic Christian life in the churches. And by that I mean that we take seriously the teachings of Jesus. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, those of us who have come to a new birth and, you know, personal faith in Jesus, um, Jesus calls us to total commitment. They're not two, two standards, you, not two grades of Christians. You can choose, mm-hmm. you can choose the economy plan or the, or right. the deluxe plan yeah. that costs you more. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is widespread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People think that, you know, mm-hmm. well, this two-tier mentality has been disastrous over the history of the church since Constantine. Um, but here we are today, and, um, you know, the church needs to demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ and his teachings that they are they mean something to us yeah that we take him seriously about being you know the supremacy of God in our lives you know Jesus summarized discipleship quite well uh, in the great commandment love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, I think the the world, secular people, have every right to um, criticize us if we're not doing that, but we're claiming Mm -hmm. to be Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just looking at facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus said this, you're doing that. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, too, is that fear that you say is is building up in people because of the shift in maybe the power, percentages, balance, power, yeah. or the percentages of um, you know white people versus black people. That's not a Christ. That fear does not come from Christ. Absolutely not. In fact, if you look carefully at the Bible, you'll see that uh, Jesus reached out across these racial and ethnic barriers and... Um, calls us to love our neighbor and across all these barriers um, love people like he did mm-hmm. you know across all these barriers that separate yeah, yeah. people uh, race is just one of them race mm-hmm. ethnicity economic status social status um, political views and mm-hmm. look at the religion I mean yeah yeah all of that kind of stuff um, and uh and Jesus, Jesus said, particularly to the Christians, in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, which is a love that lays down your life for your brother and sister. And so if we can't demonstrate that in the church, we have no credibility. Mm-hmm. You can't get around that. Mm -hmm. So we need to take these things seriously and to seek to love 
our brothers and sisters, regardless of what color they are, what their background is, what their current circumstances are, to love one another. And also, a lot of people wish this was not in the Bible, but in John chapter or in uh, Matthew chapter five, the last part of Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, "You've got to love your enemies mm-hmm. too." Mm-hmm. So that has some relevance mm-hmm. uh, today. Today, absolutely, twenty. It does, yep. and yep. for our personal lives, mm-hmm. but it also has some relevance for our political life. Mm-hmm. And this is going to really make some people mad. Um, if you're a Republican, you need to love. If you if you have some Democrat Christians and you're like, you need to love those people. You can't just yes. say they're enemies and we ought right. to ship them out of the country mm-hmm. or something. And the Democrats need to love the Republicans. Mm-hmm. If we don't have a gospel that's strong enough to do that, mm-hmm. we don't have much of a gospel. Right. And we certainly don't have anything that's going to appeal to non-believers. Yeah. That's exactly I mean, right. Yeah. So anyway, Tom, I have a final thought and question for you. You, you know, you talk about this massive um, change in your life that happened when you were incarcerated in prison, and it's changed your whole life. I mean, Jesus has changed you, and He has made you different. Was there ever a season where did you? Did you spend any, was there any repentance towards people that you may have hurt previous um, to becoming a follower of Jesus? I talked with Frank Watts, this FBI agent, who knew the Jewish leader quite well. And um, Frank approached him to see if he would... um, be willing for me to come and mm-hmm. uh, talk with him and ask for forgiveness. Um, well, he wasn't ready for that. Um, and actually, we did this twice, and uh, he, he just wasn't ready. And um, I suppose it's not too hard to understand why, because here's this guy who was fighting for God and country, mm-hmm. Christian, trying to bomb his house, mm-hmm. Yeah, who says... Oh, good news! Mm-hmm. Mm, changed. I'm, I'm a real Christian now. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's got to really be hard. Be hard. Yeah, you know. Sure. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I can. You know, we can sympathize with. Yeah, him. you can yeah. sympathize with yeah. him for sure. Yeah, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your story, and not only your story, but it's super helpful. I think for all of us that are living in this climate in America right now to hear what you've come from, but now what you're advocating for and the way forward, especially for Christians who claim to know Jesus, to have this hope, um, to move away from fear and move towards loving neighbor, enemy. It's just really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I, I am delighted for the opportunity. And I should clarify something. Listening to this uh, conversation we're having, a person could think, oh, well, this guy's all about um, racial issues and uh, that sort of thing. I am all about something different. I am all about faithful discipleship to Jesus. Mm. And the race issue is one part of that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would say that the race issue in the American church is fundamentally a discipleship issue mm. of loving your brother. Mm. That's good. 
And so my concern over the years has yeah. I've been involved in some of this work of trying to get people together, but my main work has not been that. It has been trying to help people become mature believers, faithful disciples of Jesus, mm. because that is the root problem. If you deal with that, these other things then can come into place. That's good. That's really good. It's really good. Yeah. If yeah. we're following Jesus, we're going to look like him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It is an interesting part of your story. It's not that a movement changed your heart when you were in that prison cell. It was Jesus. It was meeting him, learning his way, reading the gospel. That's the thing that changed your heart, right? That's exactly right. And that has a pretty long history of working. Sure does. Um, <laughs> sure does. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and plus, you know, God has a history of doing this sort of thing with people that seem the least likely candidates. Mm, that's right. And uh, it's simply a way of, of getting people's attention to say, well, if I did that for this person, I can, yeah. I can take care of your problems too, no matter how bad they are, what a mess your life is. And so Paul in First Timothy chapter 1 talks about that and you see it in the life of people like Augustine, who was a kind of wandering philosopher and sex addict. Um, God transformed his life. Francis of Assisi was a rich playboy, mm. and God transformed his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just keep going. I mean, there's a long list of people like that. Mm -hmm. uh, probably Chuck Colson is one of the more recent ones. He was... a White House hatchet man uh, who said that he would run over his grandmother if that's what it took to get Richard Nixon reelected. Wow. I mean, he was hardcore. Wow. <laughs> but God changed his life. Yep. Yeah. And, that's uh, what he does. We can throw our stories in there too. Changed our life. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the hope is in all of this is a relationship with Jesus Christ where he is supreme in our lives. Mm. And, um, and, and then he'll use us. And one thing I've discovered is um, God builds his kingdom with broken tools. Because that's all he's got to work with. That's all he's got. <laughs> and um, he'll use any old pipe that's open on both ends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's my story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free.
So, Aaron, do you remember when we left our interview with Tom and we were walking him out to the car? Do you remember what he did? Yeah, I remember it. It was an amazing interview. And then we left your studio and he gave us both a hug and asked if he could pray with us. I think I was really blown away, you know, by his sincerity as he's telling a story. I mean, total honesty and very candid about what he experienced and and even what his heart was like. And, you know, to hear a person tell their story of transformation and life change is one thing, but then to just see like what kind of guy he is now was so profound. Like I almost couldn't imagine him being the racist that he was and and being a part of all those things. It was like a, a huge contrast between the guy he was telling the story about when he was, you know, so young and the guy that he is now. And then he, he drove off and both of us were like, wow, that's an amazing story. I couldn't help but think so many times during the interview, and I found myself thinking a lot of it about it after, is how profound his story is in this our moment of history that we're in right now. And the way Tom talked about the transformation that he undertook from his teenage years to being in prison to following Jesus and then the man that he is today, I found a lot of hope in his conversation. I found a lot of encouragement, actually. And it reminded me that no one is ever too far gone. Like you're not stuck having the same mindset that there's always hope for change. And his on the other side story is unbelievable. Yeah. So many times when he was talking, I was thinking you could be talking about today. You could be talking about 2020. There's so many parallels and, and so much, honestly, for all of us to learn because there are so many ideologies out there. There are so many different tribes out there. It's easy to get lured into a way of thinking about a people group or people from a certain country or with a skin color. We see it happening so often right now, even in the time that we live in. And there was just so much hope in sitting with an older man who was really honest about the places that he fell into and how he got out of them and now is experiencing life and also fighting for justice. What a contrast. A guy that was bent on believing in oppressing people and disregarding people is now a man on the other side of that who's actually fighting for people and fighting for justice in in a really beautiful gospel-centered way. So thanks for listening to On the Other Side today. Today's show was mixed and mastered by Pod Shaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. And On the Other Side is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. We're your hosts, Aaron and Jamie Ivey. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at Jamie Ivey. And you can find me on Instagram at Aaron Ivey ATX. And if you want to listen to another podcast that I host, I host The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey every single week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 